Hello everyone, welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 18, Pyrrhus of Ipirus, Part 1. Having wrapped up our tour of the Mediterranean last episode, we now know the lay of the land and peoples circa 300 BC. Today, we resume the narrative of the history of Carthage by examining one of the greatest generals the ancient world ever produced, and how his actions shaped the beginnings of the First Punic War. Before that, though, I have a quick confession. Pyrrhus of Epirus is one of my favorite figures of antiquity, not only due to his great and colorful military career, but also due to his heroic courage and almost childlike enthusiasm. Since I wanted to do these events justice, especially since Pyrrhus and his wars are unfortunately often overlooked, I have decided to divide this topic into two episodes. In part one, we look at the early career of Pyrrhus and the start of the Pyrrhic War. In part two, we will see how the later events of the Pyrrhic War set the stage for the clash of Rome and Carthage in the First Punic War. On to the episode. Imagine, if you will, a dark and turbulent night in 317 BC. A party of travelers, composed of some women with a small child and a handful of men acting as guides, hurry along the road looking frantically back towards the hills. In the distance, you can hear the shouts of pursuers and the clash of arms and armor. The little party has barely made it this far, the men having just been able to fight off the pursuers for the time being. As the refugees round a bend in the road, they see the border a few hundred yards away and breathe a sigh of relief. But before they even finish, their sigh turns to groaning. Across their path, they see that the way is blocked by a dangerous and roaring river, swollen by recent rains. The party despairs of crossing the strong river with the women and small two-year-old infant, and the shouts of the pursuers draw closer. Hope is not lost, though, for across the river, the refugees spot a band of local peasants walking along the road. Thinking that these might aid them in their crossing, the exiles shout for help and wave their arms. Although they succeed in gaining the peasants' attention, the continuous roar of the river prevents them from communicating effectively. Once again, the refugees almost give up as the dark night closes in around them. However, one man comes up with the idea of scribbling a few letters with his belt buckle on a piece of oak lying nearby. Tying it to a stone, he tosses it over the river to the peasants. These, after reading the note, hasten to cut down trees to form a makeshift bridge to let the exiles cross the raging water. Passing the baby across first, the remainder of the party follows safely into foreign territory. Despite their safe crossing, their ultimate safety is not assured. 
Glossius, king of the Illyrians, whose lands they have crossed into to seek asylum, may decide that it is not worth his while to make a powerful enemy for the sake of a two-year-old child. Or he may accept a hefty ransom to turn the child back over to his pursuers, thus having the double benefit of avoiding an international incident and filling his own treasury. As the refugees place the infant boy before the feet of the Illyrian king, they wonder what choice he will make. Glossius weighs whether he should give the exile's sanctuary, while the child crawls over to the king's feet and clutches his robes. Pulling himself up by the king's robe, the child grasps the king's knees like a little supplicant, his plaintive cries the only sound in the room. Suddenly, with a laugh, King Glossius picks the child up and hands him to his wife, moved with pity by the baby petitioner. So began the life of Pyrrhus of Epirus. Born around 319 BC, Pyrrhus was the son of Aesides and a Thessalian noblewoman. His father, Aesides, was the cousin of Alexander Melosus, who, as we remember from last episode, did not fare so well in Italy while trying to create a Western counterpart to his nephew Alexander the Great's Empire of the East. When Alexander Melosus died fighting in Italy, Pyrrhus's father, Aesides, became king of Epirus. Epirus, labeled in green on the map which you can access via the notes in the description, was a minor Hellenistic kingdom made up of both Greeks and Illyrians, and it roughly correlates to modern-day Albania. Pyrrhus's father had no better luck at ruling than Alexander Melosus. In 317 BC, the Epirotes dethroned him in favor of one of Alexander's warring generals. During the ensuing tumult, Pyrrhus, two years old at the time, narrowly escaped with his life, being saved by a band of faithful servants who fled with him to the court of the Illyrian king Glossius. The story of their flight, which I related, is taken from Plutarch's Life of Pyrrhus, which is both the most complete account of his life which has come down to us, and also a great read. His dramatic survival during his early years would not be the only brush with death this western Alexander would experience over the course of his life. As we remember from previous episodes, after Alexander the Great's death, his numerous generals, as well as the other roaming Hellenistic adventurers, all imitated his aura and persona, seeking to recapture the greatness of their meteoric forebear. From episode 9, we remember that Agathocles the Syracusan though without the least thread of a connection with Alexander the Great, conscientiously mimicked the mannerisms and symbols of the great Macedonian, especially when the Syracusans nearly took Carthage. Unlike royal upstarts like Agathocles, Pyrrhus had one of the more legitimate claims to be Alexander's proper successor. As Alexander's second cousin through the Epirope princess Olympias, 
Pyrrhus enjoyed being on the A-list of Hellenic monarchs due to his royal blood. More than this, his line of the Molossian tribe claimed descent from the Homeric hero Achilles, the famed Greek champion of the Trojan War, through Neoptolemus, Achilles' son. Mindful of his relation to these two legendary warriors, Pyrrhus, whatever his other faults, always sought to show himself a worthy descendant, fighting recklessly in the front lines of his men, heedless of all danger. After a brief period of restoration to the throne of Epirus, Pyrrhus was again driven out at age 17 by his rivals. As an exile, he took service in the armies of the Diadochi and fought at the climactic battle of Ipsus for Antigonus the One-Eyed against the alliance led by Lysimachus, Cassander, and Seleucus. As we covered in episode 16, Antigonus the One-Eyed suffered a defeat at the hands of the coalition and died on the battlefield. But Pyrrhus, though merely 17, distinguished himself by his reckless courage and daring, and he and his men routed the enemy divisions opposing them in spectacular style. In the ensuing negotiations following the battle, Pyrrhus volunteered to go to Egypt to serve as a hostage under the peace treaty. There, he so impressed the Hellenic king Ptolemy by his physical prowess and shrewd mind that Ptolemy gave Pyrrhus his daughter Berenice in marriage. Going further, Ptolemy sponsored Pyrrhus by supplying him with soldiers and funds to reclaim the Iperote throne. Back in Epirus, Pyrrhus, after tying up a few domestic loose ends, immediately began throwing his weight around. Invited to intervene in a domestic quarrel in Macedonia, he fought a series of campaigns in the Balkans against other warring dynasties, and, as at Ipsus, he made a name for himself by heroic acts on the battlefield. In one battle, in response to a challenge, he dismounted and fought hand-to-hand with the enemy commander in a contest that befitted the heir of Achilles, fighting with spears first and then closing with swords. Although Pyrrhus was wounded in the duel, he overthrew his antagonist in a dramatic victory, which made him the talk of Macedonia. Men said that in Pyrrhus, they saw the same fire, rapidity, and valor that had been the distinguishing mark of his more famous cousin, and as their praise grew, so did Pyrrhus's ambitions. After this personal victory, Pyrrhus's men gave him the epithet, the Eagle. When he heard about this nickname, Pyrrhus responded to his soldiers, I am an eagle, for how should I not be such? while I have your arms as wings to sustain me. Such words made him beloved among his troops, and due to his noble bearing and generous nature, Pyrrhus always seems to have enjoyed popularity among his core army. It would probably be no exaggeration to say that he was one of the best soldiers of the army, for, active and restless by nature, 
he was constantly thinking of warlike pursuits. Once, when asked at a dinner party who he thought was the best musician, Pyrrhus replied that Polyspercon was the best soldier, insinuating that such peaceful pastimes as music were unworthy of a king's notice. During a peaceful lull between the constant bickering that occupied much of the Hellenistic king's time, Pyrrhus, instead of quietly ruling the Iparos, languished in inactivity, since, according to Plutarch, Pyrrhus thought it a nauseous course of life not to be doing mischief to others or receiving some from them, and like Achilles, could not endure repose but sad and languished far, desiring battle and the shout of war. Given Pyrrhus's pitiful state of boredom, it should come as no surprise that when envoys from the Greek city-state of Tarentum arrived requesting his help against the Romans, Pyrrhus jumped at the opportunity. Tarentum, located on the southern coast of the Italian peninsula, was one of the most powerful and influential of the Greek colonies of Magna Graecia. You can see the Greek territory highlighted in orange on the map. The Tarentines had recently grown anxious about Rome's growing power in Italy, which, as we saw last time, by this point extended far down into Magna Graecia. The Tarentines now found themselves embroiled in a war with Rome due to a series of events so ridiculous that they deserve to be briefly recounted. Although multiple accounts exist regarding the details of how the war started, this is the general sequence of events. In 282 BC, a Roman consul sailed with ten ships to Lower Italy on what the Greek historian Appian terms a sightseeing expedition. The Tarentines were celebrating a festival in honor of Dionysus, the Greek god of wine, and were therefore very intoxicated when the Roman ships came into view. When the Romans crossed towards Tarentum, a local demagogue in the city reminded the Tarentines that the Romans had just breached an old treaty with them by sailing past a boundary marker. Goaded on by the speaker's words, the Tarentines manned their ships and attacked the Roman vessels, and, despite their inebriated condition, sunk four ships and captured one other. Around the same time, the Tarentines attacked a nearby city that had submitted to Roman rule and sacked it. Understandably irritated by this bad behavior, the Romans sent a diplomatic delegation to protest the Tarentines' actions. However, once these men arrived, the Tarentines began to jeer at the Romans for their foreign dress. One particularly unruly crowd member exposed himself and promptly proceeded to urinate on the toga of the chief envoy, prompting the outraged Romans to demand immediate reparations from the Tarentine government. When these refused to apologize or hand the offender over, the Romans, shaking the proverbial dust from their feet, left in a huff. Back in Rome, 
The envoys exhibited the soiled toga to the Senate, who, enraged by the insult, declared war on Tarentum. Now, having awakened the wrath of the Roman war machine due to their antics, the Tarentines looked around in a panic to find some ally to help them in their struggle with the most formidable of the Italian powers. Having heard of Pyrrhus's victories in Macedonia, they sent envoys to beg him to come take command of the war against the Romans, not just for their sake, but for the sake of all the Greeks of Magna Graecia. Presented with an opportunity to style himself as the savior of the Western Greeks, Pyrrhus began immediate preparations to sail to Italy. One member of Pyrrhus's court, a philosopher named Cineus, sought to dissuade him from the campaign by claiming it would be a fruitless project. Plutarch gives the following account regarding the outcome of Cineus's advice. Cineus asked Pyrrhus what he would do once he had conquered the warlike and formidable Romans. Pyrrhus replied that he would then conquer Sicily. Cineus asked what Pyrrhus would do after that. Pyrrhus, not catching his friend's drift, answered that he would then attack Carthage and Libya, since even Agathocles, when nearly destitute, had almost managed to take Carthage. Cineus then went one further, saying that, once these conquests were done, they should move east to subdue Greece and Macedon. But after that, what would they do? With a smile, Pyrrhus replied that then they would sit down and enjoy themselves with wine and conversation. To which Cineus responded by asking, Why couldn't they just sit down and enjoy themselves now? Despite his philosopher's subtle lecture on contentment, Pyrrhus dogmatically continued in his plan to attack the Romans. The other Hellenistic kings, doubtless glad to get rid of this troublesome eagle king of Epirus, lavishly aided Pyrrhus with money and troops. In 280 BC, he launched his invasion in what would come to be known as the Pyrrhic War. He sailed at the head of an army containing 3,000 cavalry, 20,000 foot soldiers, 2,000 archers, 500 slingers, and 20 war elephants. Yes, the day is here. Though we have touched briefly on their use in the past in the armies of India and Alexander's successors, the coming episodes will be chock full of elephants. The trumpeting behemoths which accompanied Pyrrhus were likely imported from India or Syria and were substantially larger than the smaller North African kind later used by Carthage. Standing between six and a half to twelve feet at the shoulder, war elephants were rightly feared due to their imposing presence on the battlefield. Indian Mauhuts, or drivers who had captured and trained the elephant, rode behind its head, directing it in combat. Oftentimes, these war elephants carried large wooden towers on their backs, where archers or spearmen would harass the enemy. At times, 
Even the generals would ride on top of these towers, converting their elephants into a sort of aerial and mobile headquarters. In battle, the elephants were trained to trample men and horses, swinging and crushing soldiers with their long tusks and throwing them with their trunk. As we have already seen at the Battle of Ipsus, their size and smell caused disorder and panic among enemy cavalry, making them a valuable screening force. Their thick hides protected them against most missiles from afar, and oftentimes they were covered in cloth or metal armor to supplement their natural defenses. However, for all their advantages, elephants could prove to be a dubious asset on the battlefield. If frightened or wounded severely, they could break free of their driver's control and rampage through their own men in a catastrophic killing spree. This became such a well-known issue that Hannibal Barca is credited with ordering his drivers to carry a mallet and stake so that, if they lost control of the animal, they could put it down before it did any harm to the army. Despite these concerns, the raw physical power war elephants could bring to bear and their psychological impact on an enemy unused to fighting them could be immense. A charge of elephants traveling at 20 miles per hour, roaring and thundering with tusks and trumpet raised, must have been an awesome and terrifying sight. And sometimes their presence alone could ensure victory. Pyrrhus's beasts served as the first introduction many Western civilizations, including the Romans and Carthaginians, ever had to these tanks, quote-unquote, of the ancient world and they would not soon forget the lessons they would teach. Sailing out with royal pomp, we can imagine an exhilarated Pyrrhus looking out with satisfaction over his mighty flotilla containing his well-disciplined and battle-hardened troops. Unfortunately for him, barely halfway through his crossing of the Adriatic Sea, a serious storm scattered and nearly shipwrecked the entire fleet. Battling through the crashing waves, the Iperot transport ships were blown onto a rocky and dangerous stretch of Italian coast at night. With typical Pyrrhic impulsiveness, Pyrrhus, impatient to reach the shore as soon as possible, leapt overboard into the roiling sea. Despite the darkness and the violent waves, the Ipero king managed to swim to shore, exhausted but in high spirits. By morning, the sea had calmed and a small band of troops landed to join their eagle king. Having set foot in Italy, Pyrrhus could wait no longer, but placing himself at the head of this token force, marched towards Tarentum to challenge the seemingly unstoppable might of Rome. Next time, we will see how Pyrrhus fared against the Roman legions and how the Carthaginians, alarmed by Pyrrhus's exploits, would rally to Rome's side to resist the savior of the Western Greeks. Until then, take care and read more history. <laughs>